Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef Podcast. Today's guest is a podcaster all the way from Denver, Colorado in the United States. Of course, it's not just any podcaster. He is actually covering the case of the famous case of D.B. Cooper and his name is Darren Schaefer. Welcome to the show, Darren. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on, Christian. I appreciate it. No, it's, uh, the pleasure is mine as always. And um yeah, you know, I mean, there were different ways I looked at like how I could approach this because I always do a considerable amount of research before I have any guest on my show. And I normally focus on them, just them specifically. And when I looked into what you're doing, it's, you know, it's not, it's not the first time I've seen kind of like a, or even the first time I've had someone on the show who, who's commit to one specific thing as far as like doing a podcast or doing a show is concerned. But I mean, there are so many different avenues you can go with this. And I think it's a great idea, to be honest, that you even set up this, this podcast. But I purposefully made a point of not looking into this case. Like, I know it in, <laughs> I, I know roughly what, what it is, but I kind of just wanted to get your words and, you know, your mindset behind this and everything and, and focus more on that and, you know, see where we go with regards to this. So let's start at the very beginning. Like, how did you first come across the story of D.B. Cooper and why did it stand out to you? I first came across it. I was probably 10 years old watching a rerun of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack with my sister. And they covered the D.B. Cooper episode. And, and we were living just outside Portland, Oregon at the time. And so when that story came on, it's like, oh yeah, and he went, walked to the Portland International Airport, and I was like, hey, that's where we live, and it was just cool to see this story, and it's like, oh yeah, he jumped out somewhere over the woods in the aerial Amboy, and it's like, I've been there, I know where that is, and so it was just this cool local story, and as I got older, uh, my wife and I moved to Woodland, Washington, where it's the closest town out the drop zone so where he jumped would be these tiny little communities they have a, a name but I wouldn't really call them a town and so Woodland's the closest to that there's this little crazy dive bar out in the middle of the woods called the aerial store it's been since shut down since the owner and her son passed away but it was just like a time capsule. You'd go there and like, how does this meet any sort of modern food and health safety regulations? But it was wow. a cool place. And they would have a D.B. Cooper days every Thanksgiving weekend. And the place would be absolutely packed, cars parked on the street. And then you'd have to walk through the woods at night to get there. Uh, just a crazy wild time. Is this, because I was looking into your profile online, is this the D.B. Cooper convention thing that you've got pictures of you being at? Is that what that is? Or is that something? No, that actually predates that. There's been a couple of different D.B. Cooper conventions. The first one was the symposium in 2011 that Jeffrey Gray sort of put together. Then you had one in 2014 i believe that was just sort of the smaller conference you get together and then eric ulis created coopercon and 2018 was the first year for that um 2019 i spoke at coopercon oh, cool. 2020 was canceled for obvious reasons and 2021 i hosted the event 
Oh, wow. Congratulations. There you go. That's a bit of progression there for you. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, yeah, no, I just want to quickly explore that. Like, and I have some rough ideas, some obvious ideas of how it might transfer, but like in your own like, words, like what are the Cooper conventions like? And like, what do you guys actually get up to? Like break down like what a Cooper convention is like. The Cooper convention is mostly, it's just an opportunity for all of us amateur Cooper sleuths to sort of get together in person. Um, for me, the conference is all about the social events after the conference where I just sit around and, and drink beers and BS about DB Cooper with some of the other people. But the conference itself will be a number of guest speakers who will talk about their theories on the flight path or sure. the Tina Barr money, or let me tell you about this suspect and why he's good and why this suspect is bad. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of what I figured it would be, but it's, 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 it's really cool that, just in general, any kind of like fandom for anything, you know, you get a group of people together and you're like really passionate about this one thing. And like, for example, I can relate in the sense that I went to, um, for the very first time, a, a professional wrestling like watch along here in the UK. And I'd never been to one. And it was like a, just a standard sports bar, which I'm not really into sports. So I don't really tend to, well, I don't go to, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. But other than football here, I don't, I don't really, really watch much. Um, but I went there. At a ridiculous time because obviously american pay-per-views here in the uk are at like 1 a.m <laughs> <laughs> and it was cool as hell you know just a group of people like-minded people who all like you don't have to explain anything to people you don't have to be like oh i like this thing because of this it's like no everyone's just there they know why they like what they like so you can just get straight into it and that makes it easier i suppose to connect with people as well like even just making friendships you can be like you know you, you obviously talk about the thing that you shared interest that you have but then you end up just talking about other things and making friends and yeah just oh yeah and some of it it's you know bill rollins who lives on the west coast or i'm sorry who lives on the east coast in boston um i've talked to him online many times i've talked to him on the phone and then just getting to sit across from the table with him and bs was just really great awesome sauce uh, I don't wow I can't believe I said that on the podcast that's a weird little saying that I've say in my in in real life but there you go they slipped out awesome sauce anyway, um one of the things I wanted to ask you beforehand was are you did you like sort of purposefully move to these specific places that happen to be related to the case or is that just coincidence <laughs> or like I don't it's know, just total coincidence sure you, you went you didn't just sort of say to your wife like oh we should move here and she's like why here and you're like it's just nice in the summer you know <laughs> we moved there because it was cheap and i was poor back then so hey, fair enough man. that's why we moved there <laughs> i believe you i really do <laughs> for those listening i'm winking at darren right now <laughs> okay um let's let's just go because again i, I don't want to kind of i thought i honestly i thought about this idea of just sitting and exploring the case like on here i really did think about that but to be fair that's what your show is and to be honest it'd be better to just go and listen to darren's show if you want to hear that um but i do kind of want to explore a few things so I suppose the best place to start would be like in your own words, I suppose in a cliff notes version, like what can you tell us about the mysterious case of DB Cooper? Like let's pretend, uh, you know, never heard anything about this case before. 
What's the case of D.B. Cooper? The case of D.B. Cooper is November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving. A guy identifying himself as Dan Cooper walks up to uh, the gate agent at the Portland International Airport. He buys a one-way ticket to Seattle. Uh, the only ID you needed at that point in time was the gate agent said, what is your name? And the guy says, my name's Cooper, Dan Cooper, just like that. And so the gate agent writes on the ticket, Dan Cooper. He's one of the last to board the plane. He sits in the back of the plane. Shortly before takeoff, he hands a stewardess a note. She hilariously assumes it's just another businessman hitting on her. So she just throws the note in her purse. He sort of notices this and he's like, ma'am, you better have a look at that note. I have a bomb. He's hijacking the plane. He wants $200,000 and four parachutes ready for him before they land in Seattle. He requests two front chutes and two back chutes. Back chute would be your main parachute and front chute would be your reserve. The uh, Northwest Orient Airlines agrees to his demands. They spend some time in the air. They land on the ground. He gets his $200,000 and his four parachutes. He lets the passengers off the plane. It's important to know the passengers did not know the plane was being hijacked until they got off the plane on the ground in Seattle. So he was able to keep that quiet between the stewardesses and the pilots. And then the pilots just relayed all the information. Now on the ground, he has a new destination for them. He wants to go to Mexico City, but more important than where he wants to go, he tells them how to fly the plane there. He wants the plane to be flown no higher than 10,000 feet. The cabin will remain depressurized, landing gear down, flaps set to 15 degrees, and he wants the plane to take off with the aft staircase down. Now, when the pilots heard this, they weren't even sure if the plane could fly with the aft stairs down, nevertheless take off. So they call into air traffic control. Air traffic control says, we have no idea. They call Boeing. And Boeing says, yes, actually, that plane can fly with the aft stairs down. We've tested it. And so the pilots tell Cooper, all right, um, we still won't take off with the aft stairs down. We don't believe it's safe because the plane's full of fuel. Cooper tells them he disagrees with their assessment, but he will lower the stairs in flight. Um, under the conditions he asked for, they don't have enough fuel to make it to Mexico City. They talk about a couple different refueling stops, agree to refuel in Nevada. The plane takes off approximately 7.50. Uh, the plane lands in Nevada close to 10 p.m., and Cooper is not on board. Somewhere between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, he jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb, never to be seen or heard from again. One of the most interesting things about Cooper, in my opinion, is that he only exists for five hours. He only really exists from 2.50 uh, until 8.50, um, around when he disappears. Definitely Tommy Wiseau, 100%. <laughs> a man just... It could be, it could be. Man randomly gets like... I mean, where, where does that guy get all of his money? <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, uh, firstly, thank you very much for, for detailing that. that. That was solid. For anyone listening, I mean, come on. 
give the man a, a round of applause exceptional like i obviously i expected you to know to like to know very well but like you you've clearly told this many times and you know thought given this a great deal of thought and you know there, there's so many questions that that spring to mind for me but i think the biggest thing that that springs to mind for me above all else is obviously the expertise of this particular person and their knowledge and stuff. It kind of reminds me a bit of when I was studying, you know, Jack the Ripper at school and, and you get into the nitty gritty of it and you'd be like, how can this person have this level of knowledge? This puts them up this particular um, level of society. And that was even more interesting back then in the 1800s. Cause it's like, well, this is someone in, in the elite kind of, um, tier of society if you want to put it that way because you know the level of exp uh, experience they would need expertise and money everything in between and it's the same with with this situation you know it's very telling that you know this person has detailed knowledge of this plane that the only other people that would have this knowledge is the actual plane company and it's like this this is either a person who has worked in that in industry heavily in some description or has just been able to study a lot and understand this stuff but whatever the case may be it's a person that has all of this knowledge and then i mean i don't know i, I it's kind of it's kind of here neither here nor there but it's it's just interesting from the perspective of the classic whodunit or you know mindset of like you know who is this mysterious person that would have this knowledge? And, you know, I mean, I know there's many, many different possible suspects and um, different ways you can go with it, but everything kind of makes sense to me when, when it's laid out that way, as far as like who this potential person could be and their intentions and everything. Like when you were laying that out, one of the things that made total sense to me is, you know, yeah, keep as few people knowing about, what's going on as possible so that you can divert from panic and keep control of the situation. It makes perfect sense. But to have someone of that intellect that knows how to control, essentially like a, you have to have a pretty good command of like psychology and understanding how to control people who are afraid and so many questions. <laughs> oh yeah. And he's, he's famously calm, cool and collected the entire time when uh, the stewardesses are interviewed about him immediately after the skyjacking, I'm going to paraphrase this, but they said he was um, never unkind. He was always polite. He got frustrated when we were on the ground at one point, but he was never cruel to me. And another interesting thing is they, that flight crew, they were done for the day when they landed in Seattle. So they ended up having to work extra long getting to Reno and Cooper knew this and requested meals for the flight crew. So as, as part of his demands on the ground in Seattle, they bring meals aboard the plane for the crew in case they're hungry. And then hilariously, when the plane ran, lands in Reno, he's not on board. The police immediately search the plane with dogs. The dogs end up eating the food that they had brought on board for the flight crew. <laughs> Oh, I feel bad for the plane staff, man. I hope they hope they got <laughs> properly, you know. I mean, because it's a different time. So it, was in, it happened in the 70s, was it? Is that right? Or yeah, earlier? 1971. 1971. So you just know that if that would happen today, like put it into perspective, if that would happen today, there would be counseling for those people. They would be taken care of. 
you know, in every shape and form. But back then, I reckon it was probably just like a quick conversation. Maybe they, maybe they might have even been bought a drink afterwards and then back to work the next day. I, I, I almost wanted to put money on the fact that that was probably how it translated out. But you never know. You never know. Oh, yeah. I believe, uh, I believe the pilot did go back to work the next day. The stewardess uh, wow. probably, you know, hey, we're a generous company. We're going to give you two days off and uh, we'll <laughs> see you back here on Monday. Yeah, I know, right? It's just different time, man. Different time. But, um, I mean, based on everything that you, you've kind of explored, like as far as the possibilities for who it could be, in your personal opinion, who do you think is the most likely suspect and why? I have no idea. Hmm. I, I truly don't know. Like when I started this, I would have told you, yeah, I've read two books about this case and I believe it's Kenny Christensen. And, you know, now, now I'm six years deep or whatever. And it's like, I have no idea. Um, th there are suspects I like more than others. There are a lot of suspects in this case because there are two different police sketches. You have the main one, which we refer to as the Bing Crosby sketch that came out shortly after the hijacking. He's got a skinnier face. This picture is usually in black and white. And then you have the sketch done a little over a year later which we refer to as the Bing Crosby sketch, where his forehead's a little bit wider. Um, and that one's usually in color. Both sketches, you can see him with and without sunglasses on, which I like as well. But it's a very generic description. It's a middle-aged guy, mid to late 40s, with swarthy or olive skin. Uh, he has the same haircut every other middle-aged man had in 1971. <laughs> He wore yeah. a suit and tie, just like everyone else did on an airplane back in 1971. There's a good chance he had military experience as well. Mm -hmm. If you're a middle-aged man from America in 1971, there's a good chance you had military experience. We just wrapped up World War II and Korea and Vietnam is still sort of going on. So there were, would be a lot of men that had military experience. So you can fit a bunch of different people into this is the reason why there's so many suspects. But to answer your question, the, the few that I really like right now are Wolfgang Gossett and Ted Braden. I think both of them are, are really interesting. You have some other suspects like uh, James Klansnick or William, William J. Smith, that are good suspects also, but it's kind of like, well, what's the motive for them to do this? With Wolfgang and Ted Braden, it's like, okay, well, I can sort of see the motive for these guys. But one thing I wanted to do with the show when I first started, and I believe I've been able to pull this off, is every one of these suspects has just an absolute crazy interesting story uh richard mccoy you know i don't believe he's cooper but his story is absolutely incredible barbara dayton uh she is a db cooper suspect the first woman to get gender reassignment surgery in washington state she, mm. he was born robert dayton and then transitioned in 1969 She's sort of unhappy with her life. It's not going the way she wanted. So she wants to prove she's still this like 
hard-ass, badass dude. So she dresses back up like a man, does the hijacking, basically throws the money away because it was never about the money and continues to live her life. So I wanted to sort of cover all of these suspects on the show in, in sort of their best evidence. So the listener gets to decide, okay, which suspect is good and which suspect is not good. It's up for you to decide, not me. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. So your show is actually called The Cooper Vortex. And as you say, you're exploring basically everything connected with the case. Yeah, so specific suspect episodes. I, I don't doubt in the very early beginnings, you sort of just explored, you know, the sequence of events and then you obviously look at witness accounts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but why, why dedicate a podcast entirely to db cooper like what's what's your kind of end goal with this what are you trying to achieve with this that's a great question so it started out my wife bought me this book skyjack by jeffrey gray and i was always sort of just kind of interested in cooper i thought it was a cool story it was very local to us um interesting not something i was obsessed with and then i get this book skyjack and I'm, I'm reading it and I'm just like, this is such a crazy story. There's so much more to this than I knew. In Skyjack, it sort of leads to this other book. And by then, Skyjack was maybe three years old or something. And so I thought, well, okay, that other book must be out. So I ordered that one, read that next. And then just, all right, Amazon has 17 books on D.B. Cooper, so I'll read all of them. And that also coincided with I started this new job where I work completely alone and I work uh, or I'll listen to 40 to 60 hours a week of podcasts and talk radio. Wow. And I started, I'd get on Apple podcasts and I'd search DB Cooper and there were, I don't know, 40 different shows. This is <laughs> back in like 2015. There were 40 different shows that had done one episode on Cooper true crime shows, conspiracy shows. And they were all exactly the same. It was two or three hosts. They would do 20 minutes on the skyjacking itself. They would do 20 minutes covering three different suspects. And then the hosts would agree their favorite suspect. Boom, they solved the case. I was so far ahead of what these people were doing. Like, I'm like, okay, you got this detail on the skyjacking wrong, that detail's wrong, you're mixing up the backstories of these two suspects. And I just started like fast forwarding through parts of it. And I was just like, okay, I guess I just want to hear their opinion on the case. And I started listening to this podcast about Mormonism called Naked Mormonism by Bryce Blankenagel. And he was, when the show started, he was like driving an interstate battery truck or something like that and had this podcast on the side and it became successful enough for him that he was able to quit his job and and podcast full time nice and that really inspired me like i thought wow if he can create a show that's successful enough that he could quit his job and do it then there's no reason i can't do a small show for fun so i googled how to create a podcast and I had this idea and I thought, well, the only way this is going to work is if I could get 
people to agree to be on my show that doesn't exist yet. And so I reached out to five people in the D.B. Cooper world who I thought would be great guests, and I really wanted to interview them. And I was a complete unknown. Like, I wasn't posting on the forums. Nobody knew my name. I didn't have any sort of cachet associated with me or anything. So I just emailed these five people and said, hey, I want to do this D.B. Cooper podcast, and I'd like you to be I'd like you to be on it. I'd like you to be one of my first guests. And all five people wrote back and said, yes, they'd love to be on the show. So I was like, okay, well, now I got to create this. I actually I got a hold of Bryce Blankenagel, and he gave me some advice about creating the show. And his advice was like so much deeper than the questions I was even asking. Because I remember him saying like, well, what's your end goal with this? Are you going to be like speaking at conferences? Are you going to be an authority? Are you going to be selling D.B. Cooper merchandise? Hmm. And I was like, no, I just, the goal is to collect all these stories in one place and then you can consume them there. And he was like, okay. And, uh, you know, a few years later, here I am hosting these D.B. Cooper conferences. So he knew more about it than I did at the time. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I just, uh, I got in my car. I drove, I was living in Idaho at the time and uh, drove from Boise, Idaho to Washington State, sort of did this big loop around the state and interviewed all five people in person and uh, drove back home with my interviews. And I was just so stoked. I was like, this is going to be the greatest show of all time. I'm a genius. I'm the greatest. And then I tried to edit the show and I couldn't do it. Um, It just, it wasn't turning out the way I wanted. I wanted sort of this cheesy unsolved mysteries vibe. Right. Um, And I was really struggling to sort of clean up the interviews. Uh, Two in particular where the guest had a very odd cadence to the way he talked. All right. Um, One guest was coughing and having a lot of like breathing issues. Mm. And I just, I couldn't figure out how to clean that up. And so I actually sat on those first five interviews for probably five months. Wow. And one day I was uh, on a work trip. I like at a resort, Dana Point, and I'm on the beach in California and it's just beautiful. I'm reading this book and uh, I whip out my phone, you know, let's see what's going on on Facebook. And one of the my first five interviews, Brian Woodruff, he posted on Facebook. There was a guy who came around making big promises about a DB Cooper project and it never happened. The man is nothing but a liar and a phony. And I looked at that and I was like, God damn, he's right. He's a hundred percent right. And so I, when I got home, I printed out that little Facebook post and I clipped it to the edge of my monitor. And I was like, I ha- something has to be done right now. And I, I reached out to Russell Colbert, who I worked with him um, probably eight months prior, something like that. And uh, that sort of ended badly. But I knew that he went to school for audio video production and wanted to be doing that, but wasn't. And so I reached out to him and I was like, hey, meet me at this bar. I've, I've got something I want to say to you. And he was like, okay. I mean, like we weren't we weren't friends. Like we hung out at work, but outside of work, not at all. And now we don't work together. So (laughs) that's where our relationship was. And I met him at the bar and I was like, Hey, I started this project. I have these five interviews. This is what I want. 
I can't do it and I have nothing to offer you except I'll put your name on it as well. Mm. And he was like, okay, let's do it. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. So I gave him the, those first five interviews and he got them back to me real quick, like a week later or something. <laughs> and, and I was like, this is exactly what I wanted. Like, this is yeah. so perfect. And I started listening to him. And in a couple of those first five interviews, I got into gossip with my guests. Okay. Like inside DB Cooper gossip, like what's going on in the forums. And there's this drama online that happens all the time. Oh, and right. one guest in particular, we got real heavy into it. It was so juicy. And it was like 20 minutes of this. And he was naming names and saying this and that. And it was amazing. And when I got him back from Russell, I was listening to that episode and I got to that part and it was missing. The whole thing, he just completely cut it out. Oh, no. And uh, I was like confused. And so yeah. I called him and I was like, hey, man, why did you cut that part out? I thought that was the best part of the interview. And he says, you think it's the best part of the interview because you know all these people and you care about this inside drama with this. Oh. But the show isn't about the drama inside the D.B. Cooper world. The show's about D.B. Cooper, right? And I was like, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. I see your point. And he was like so set in his ways about it where I was like, I'm not even going to argue it. He's doing me a favor. So I'll just go with it. And looking back now, that was 100% the right thing to do because mm -hmm. I think if I would have gone down sort of that gossip road, I'd have a lot of guests that wouldn't have come on the show. But I'm a little bit confused because like, is the drama related to, okay. So these people, you know, they, they know a lot about this. Let's call it Cooperverse, <laughs> which is what, what you call Cooper Vortex, Cooperverse. People are saying verse these days, Cooperverse. They know a lot about the Cooperverse. They have a lot of information about this. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, I mean, I, I see it in professional wrestling. People get argue over opinions. It's like, oh, well, this is my favorite wrestler. Oh, well, you're stupid for liking this wrestler. And it's just like, what? But people argue about anything these days. Movies, music, it doesn't matter. So I, I get that. I'm not going to ask you that. But like, what, what, what is the drama about with regards to specifically D.B. Cooper? Is it like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. They're, they're, you know, they, they don't pay attention to the facts. They don't read the right books. It, was it something like that? Or was it just like these people had met each other and they didn't like each other? Like, I'm just a little bit confused how drama was able to surface in what is essentially like just like a, a factual thing. Like you can have different opinions on, on the case, but ultimately it's okay. These are the facts that we have. These are the different interpretations we have based on the books or, or whatever resources we have. And, you know, you make up your own judgment, but like no one's right. So it's like, I don't get where can drama be created in that scenario. Where could drama be created? Uh, the answer is all of the above to that question. Okay. So there are two main places on the internet where D.B. Cooper people gather. And one, the original one is the Drop Zone, which is a skydiving forum that has one thread dedicated to D.B. Cooper. And I want to say right now it's like 2,700 pages long or something like that. Wow. 
And <laughs> that was the Wild West for D.B. Cooper. It would, you know, you'd post your opinion. This is what I think about the parachute, blah, blah, blah. And then you'd have six people say, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. I've been skydiving for 50 years and I know more than you. And you'd be like, well, you haven't done a halo jump, so you don't know what you're talking about. Um, there was doxing going on on that forum. Oh, my God. Came a word. Uh, there was a lot of aggressive going back and forth. Uh, interestingly, there was an FBI agent who was assigned to the case in the 2000s. So a long time after it happened. And okay. the hold, case hold, is... Hold, hold that, just that thought one second. The case is still open as far as it's being investigated still to this day. Uh, not really. In 2016, the FBI closed their investigation. So the FBI wow. is not going to put any more resources into this. No, but that's if amazing. Have a, yeah. Right there, that, that case lasted from 1971 to 2016. That's insane. Yeah, and they were still putting resources into it up until that time. So around, I'm going to say it's around like 2008, 2009, you had somebody join the forum whose name was Secret. The letter C, K-R-E-T. <laughs> secret. And this person, Secret, got on the forum and was very knowledgeable about the case. So knowledgeable that the people figured out that he had inside information. And he was eventually outed on the forum as an FBI agent and then was posting um, under that secret name, but it was known he was Agent Larry Carr who was working on the case. And so that gave that crazy internet drop zone forum some real legitimacy and people were sort of asking him questions and he was answering them and he was sort of looking for their opinions. I think it was more of like, let me hear what these people have to say and maybe it will give me some roads I can go down. That's interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. And then he sort of left from there and it fell into darker chaos than it had previously. And they ended up shutting that down. So they shut right. the forum down completely. They locked it. And uh, my friend Dave opened up the new, the dbcooperforum.com where most of the people migrated to, but he was a lot more selective in who could be there. So some of the troublemakers didn't make it on to the D.B. Cooper forum. Oh my God. Just... And that makes some people upset too. Like there's this exclusivity to the right. D.B. Cooper forum. And to get on, you have to have like a recommendation from somebody who's already on. See, to some extent though, I can, I can understand that because... I mean, as soon as you said threads, I immediately just thought of Reddit, right? And I'm sure there are D.B. Cooper Reddits, and there must be. But um, the fact that there's like a specific website and, and like it's locked and it's, it's to prevent like trolls and to prevent, you know, people messing with things. And, you know, I think to an extent that that's fair. But yeah, it, it, it sucks a little bit because, you know, like anyone can have an opinion, you know, and, and like... I'm sure there are many people that have like really great opinions they'd love to share and obviously they're not able to do so. So that sense sucks. But at the same time, I do kind of understand, especially if you've got people doing wild stuff like doxing, like that's mad. But oh, It got even crazier. There was a, a gentleman who was going to 
do some presentation at his local library and a bomb threat was called in. Uh, so he oh, couldn't do in, his... Yeah, so he wasn't actually... Yeah, that had nothing to do with him, but someone called that from... Uh, oh, no, I believe it very much had something to do with him. He was going to speak on D.B. Cooper at the library and somebody who didn't like him uh, called in a bomb threat. And it, it, it gets so crazy, like I don't even know what parts of the story is real and what's not. But then the gentleman who was, I'm trying to not name names here. That's fine. Yeah. yeah the course. gentleman who uh, was the victim of the bomb threat then pointed the finger at a few others he didn't like. And so then the police knocked on their door. Hey, did you call in a bomb threat at a public library? Because that's a big deal. Jesus. Over D.B. Cooper. All over <laughs> D.B. Cooper. This is mad. I never expected any of this. I mean, it, it just goes to show like just how crazy people will get over just opinions on stuff. Basically, if you really break it down to like bare bones, that's what it is. It's like, well, I disagree with you. Therefore, I'm going to get you doxxed. <laughs> I'm going to do this to you. Oh, yeah. And there's this... I don't know what it is about D.B. Cooper, but there is a plague of people using other people's names online. Right. So, and it's so bad. Like when people reach out to me, I'm like, if you don't call me on the phone or FaceTime, I, I'm done talking to you because I'm not sure if you are who you say you are. Like that's how crazy it's gotten. There will be times where I've been talking to two different people and I start to wonder, are they the same person? And nowhere else in my life does this happen to me, where I'm like worried about being catfished all the time. But in the D.B. Cooper world, 100%. I mean, you could go on uh, Bruce Smith's website, The Mountain News. He allows people to post comments on his, on his blog, like WordPress kind of a thing. And goddamn, probably 40% of the comments are under a, a well-known name in the Cooper world. And I guarantee you it's not that person. I just guarantee you it's not the person making that comment. You know, I've seen um, myself post on things and I'm like, I didn't write that. I didn't say that. And it's wow. like, okay, I know it's this person or that person running around using my name. Madness. Absolute madness. Um. What's, what's the most surprising thing you've learned about the D.B. Cooper case like that just shocked you that was just a bit left field maybe or something like that? One of the things that I, I can't get out of my mind is the comic book connection. So he shows up, buys his ticket, and you're going to give a fake name if you're going to hijack that plane. It would be pretty silly to give your real name. Yeah, my name's Christian Reeve. Uh, not a good look. Don't right. do that if you're hijacking the plane. So he gives his name as Dan Cooper. Yeah. Well, there happens to be a comic book that by the name of Dan Cooper that predates the skyjacking. And who is Dan Cooper in the comic book? Well, he's a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot, stunt pilot, daredevil hero. Uh, he can be seen in the comic book skydiving. There's an episode where he is jumping out of an exploding commercial aircraft. Um, there are a handful of parallels. There's one where he defuses a briefcase bomb on an airplane and saves the day. There are just a number of parallels to 
the D.B. Cooper case and this Dan Cooper comic book that I just refuse to shake. It's too, it's too on the nose. I, I always use the example of if I hijacked a train and I escaped on a skateboard and then they look at the passenger log and my ticket was under the name Tony Hawk. Yeah. Is that a coincidence or is that an homage to Tony Hawk? Seems like the latter. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I, yeah, it's, it's got to be, that's where this person took inspiration from. They, but I reckon they just got a kick out of it. I reckon it was just a really intelligent person who had obviously planned this out way, I reckon for at least a year they'd planned this out, you know, because something of that magnitude, like there's a lot of risks involved. They knew what they were getting into. I, I, I don't even reckon they probably thought it would work. I reckon it's one of those deals, but you know, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in, in coincidence personally. I think it's, yeah, you know, it's all connected in some shape or form. Another interesting thing about the comic book is it wasn't printed in English until way, way after it was a Franco Belgian comic book. Uh, I believe it's, it's printed in German and French and uh, I've seen it in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Cooper, famously no discernible accent, sort of olive skinned. You know, if he was a French Canadian where the circulation of this comic book was was pretty big, um, you know, French Canadians have a very specific accent. You know, if he's if he's from overseas somewhere, maybe you can tell some accent, but they wouldn't. So where where does this guy see this comic book? Uh, I, I'm already enthralled in this. Like, I'm glad that I chose to let you be the one to educate me on this rather than me spoiling it for myself. Because I already I knew I I definitely I'd heard about this. Everyone's heard about this case. You know, it's, it's like you know I mentioned Jack the Ripper earlier. Is like there are certain cases that exist in the world that you know everyone knows about. You know. Um, because of the mysteriousness of them and that's actually another question i wanted to ask you about which is i don't know i've got i've kind of got two questions for you and they're both kind of obvious but i don't know i'm just curious to get your opinion on them firstly why do you think the case of db cooper is so popular and secondly and this is connected why do you think in general we're so obsessed with mystery and and having to know because you know as i said before there's so many different cases like i think of like the madeline mccann case here in uh, that happened in spain this uk case they actually just uh closed that down i think recently um and you know because to me i look at everything as almost like that that expression you know curiosity killed the cat i think we, we just can't help it we have to know it's never enough to just be told oh this is how it is we have to we're like oh we always think there's more to it you know and a and a mystery unsolved is just drives us nuts in a sense you know like we have to know and that's the thing as well like true crime is obviously so immensely popular right now and i think it's for the same reason it's it's like people are just obsessed with the motivations behind why things happen or like the possibilities of why something is the case you know but um yeah where do you sit on that why this case is so popular i have a couple opinions on that 
one is the whole James Bond aspect of it. Mm. You have this guy in a business suit hijack the plane with sunglasses on. He's drinking bourbon in the back of the plane while the stewardess seated next to him is lighting his cigarettes for him. He uh, escapes completely into the darkness, never to be seen again. He pulls this off without hurting anyone. And not only did he not physically hurt anyone, they said he was polite afterward. So you have this sort of James Bond anti-hero. If he would have brutally stabbed three of the stewardesses to death, mm, mm-hmm. um, I don't believe he would be this popular guy on t-shirts right. today. So the fact that no one was physically hurt and who did he take the money from? It wasn't a mom and pop diner. It was an airline. Um, do you have any sympathy for airlines, Christian? I don't know too many people that do. When you hear they lost $200,000 to this polite, well-dressed skyjacker, <laughs> you're not really on their side. So, and especially in like the Portland, Seattle, Pacific Northwest area, that's a little bit hippy-dippy. We're all rebels. Um, it really took off in that area. So that's one of the reasons I, I think this case is so popular. The other, like you said, is that it's unsolved. I think of this case as if I'm reading my favorite book of all time. This is the best book. Um, amazing. I can't wait to read the end. And I get to it and the last three chapters are gone. And I, I have to know how it ends. How does this end? This is an incredible, amazing story. And I don't have all the details, not even all the details. I don't have most of the details. The only thing we know about D.B. Cooper is he got on that plane and he left somewhere. We don't even exactly know where. And that's the only time frame he exists. There's no D.B. Cooper story before he gets on the plane. There's none after. So it's, it's almost like uh, it's the best book I've ever read, but I couldn't read the first few chapters and the last few chapters are missing it just i I can't let it go (laughs) i don't think you ever will either that's the thing i've I've tried walking away i i interviewed uh my friend chris williamson who has sort of done almost the exact same thing with amelia Earhart. oh and we sort of discovered each other later after our projects were both well established and he told me, he's like, I've tried walking away from this several times. <laughs> and I've done the same thing. I've mm. said, okay, I'm walking away from this. And I just get pulled back. That's why they called the Cooper Vortex. Originally, I was going to call mm. the show the D.B. Cooper Podcast because that's how creative I am. But <laughs> everyone I talked to kept saying the Cooper Vortex, the Cooper Vortex. It sucks you in and you can't escape. And so I was like, well, shit, I have to call it the Cooper Vortex because that's a way better name. Yeah, I think it speaks a lot to, I mean, I mentioned obviously our obsession with mystery and, and, and having to know, but I think it's also just us as humans in general, we're always asking questions. You know, I remember when I was at school and I've, I've said this on the show before, but, you know, I was actively told by teachers, stop asking questions, just accept things, you know, and I was just, I, I knew as a child, that that was wrong i knew that that was nonsense it's like no surely that's the point of life is to 
ask questions and keep asking questions. And obviously, if you take cases like this, the, the infuriating but also exciting element of it is you just keep exploring, keep learning new things. And then you have even more questions because, you know, like even even when you were laying out before at the beginning of this podcast, I just had about at least five, six different questions just off just off the, just listening to that. And obviously, the more you study something and research something, just you get more and more questions. And I think that's part of the beauty of life in general and being a, a human and the human experience is just asking questions and and debating each other and just yeah having fun with it. <laughs> so I got to tell you that. I think there's there's two types of people. It, if you see a magic trick and this guy pulls 10 doves out of his ball cap, <laughs> you're either going to be thinking to yourself for a long time, how did he do that? It's got or magic the balls. Type, <laughs> the other type of person is like, wow, that was a cool trick yeah. and walk away and they don't think about it. I don't get that. I, I don't get that. I, I've never understood that. Like, I know where you're going with this, but I will just say before you continue, like, I don't understand that. Like, someone listening to this case and they hear oh wow that's amazing amazing and then they don't have any questions they're just like oh okay well that sounds cool and then they walk away what like how do you not have 15 questions right there how do you not want to know and look everyone's different yes i know but still like i don't get that and maybe it's just like people accept things as they are and you know their focuses are elsewhere but i don't know like for me that's just I'm a, yeah, I'm I'm same as you. I get obsessive with things. I just can't stop asking questions because it's just fascinating. Yeah, I almost wish I was the person that could just walk away like, oh, that was a cool trick. Uh, but no, instead, I'm the guy who's lying in bed at, at two o'clock in the morning. How did he do that? I got to figure this out. Was there like an official, because you mentioned the case was closed officially in 2016 as far as they're not putting any resources into it. But did they give like an official ruling or you know, like a prevailing opinion of, okay, well, this is what we think might have happened or, or did they just close it and we're just like, meh, whatever. I believe the FBI leans toward the idea that he died in the jump. Mm, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Because um, how high did you say that the flight was, it was operating about just above 10,000 feet, was it? Yeah, 10,000 feet. So, okay, I, I know nothing about skydiving or flying or anything. Um, do you know much about sort of your chances of survival at that fee? Like how much training you'd need to sort of survive a jump like that? Like, do you know any? Well, this is something I've done a lot of research on Christian. It's bad, isn't <laughs> and, it? <laughs> uh, the odds are great. If, if you, first of all, I'll say this, there is no evidence that he died in the jump. Right. There is also no evidence that he survived the jump. So that's where we're at with that. But if you believe he died in the jump, I would point you to uh, Marty Andrade's book, Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead. Mm. He spends most of that book debating the survivability of the jump. Right. And he uses uh, allies data from World War II um, airplane ejections. So young boys up in the air whose planes have been shot down they jump out of the plane. What are the odds that they survive, make it to the ground alive? And these are, you know, sometimes could be conditions at night in terrible weather and the wing was shot off and the plane is spiraling. 
and they jump out. And he found out that there is a 95% chance that they reach the ground alive. And some of those dudes maybe had one practice jump. Most probably only had classroom training on if the shit hits the fan and you have to jump out of your airplane, this is what you do. And the vast majority of them survived. And I talked to a lot of parachutists and that those people as a group tend to be very cocky, but they all believe, oh yeah, I could totally make that jump. It's no problem. I've talked to uh, US Navy SEALs, US Air Force pararescue, smoke jumpers. They all believe that the jump is, is totally survivable. There were also a handful of D.B. Cooper copycats, all of which survived their jump, one of which even asked for a, a, a flyer on how to use a parachute. He survived that jump. So in my opinion, there just seems to be so much more supporting the idea of he survived the jump. No one's found a dead body. I just... I believe 100% he survived that jump. If he pulls his parachute and lands in a tree, then he, at the very least, we would have found his parachute right away. If, uh, if he's a no-pull and lands in the ground and magically the ground closes up on top of him and we just weren't able to walk across that one piece of land, I just, I don't believe it. They had like 300 people marched through the woods a few months after looking for a body, a parachute, anything. And they actually found a, the body of a teenage girl who had gone missing like a decade prior, but I don't believe she was a D.B. Cooper suspect. I've got a really wacky out there theory, but I'm just curious to th- see what you think of this. Is there a theory that D.B. Cooper never existed at all and that it was a conspiracy between all of the people working on the plane at all? Yes, that... thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> that theory sucks. I hate it. It's gone. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I do think it's flawed completely, but I'm just intrigued like, as a concept. There's, cause... there's two theories that I'm just not willing to listen to that basically <laughs> says you don't know anything about this case. One is that Cooper never existed and it was he's sort of the figment of the flight crew's imagination and they split the money. Right. So you have six or seven people you'd be splitting the 200,000 with. Pilot back then was an exceptional job. Those dudes made great money. Um, it's still a good job today. If you talk to uh, someone who was a stewardess back in the golden age of flying back then, they all tell you the same thing. They loved the job. It was a great job. How many gigs were there for a 22-year-old woman in 1971 that would allow you to fly the world and be glamorous at the same time to go to Italy on the weekend for free? Uh, It was a great gig. And all the people I've talked to that worked for airlines back then have a really positive impression and, and view of the experience. So I don't think that you could have got those six or seven people together to pull this off for $200,000 and then we're going to whack it up six different ways. I just don't believe that. The other theory that is just complete bullshit I can't stand is he never jumped off the plane. He hid in some secret compartment when the plane lands in Reno 
And then he, after the plane is searched, he's somehow able to just calmly walk off the plane and blend in with all the FBI agents and airport employees. And it's, it's ridiculous. You know, have you ever been on an airplane? They don't have a bunch of spare room that they're not using. The aircraft uses every inch of available space. There's, there's not a bunch of hiding spots in there. And they also searched the plane with dogs. He jumped. Yeah. It certainly would seem that way. I mean, because I love playing conspiracy theorists with these things. I think it's just a lot of fun. And that's probably, yeah, a large part of the fun. Um, I suppose... One more thing. He had... uh, He was witnessed at the airport by a couple of people, but he was just another guy in a business suit at the Portland airport. So the only really witness description is, yeah, I remember seeing that guy. He sat over there. That's all I have to say. And uh, Bill Mitchell was one of the only passengers to get a good look at him. And he was flying home from college. He was going to school in Montana, I believe. And, and oh, no, I'm sorry. He was going to school at Oregon State. He was going to school at Oregon State and was flying home to Seattle. And Tina Mucklow, the, the stewardess that was sitting next to Cooper, really good looking gal. And so Bill Mitchell, this 21-year-old dude, he's looking over and he thinks to himself, why is that good looking stewardess sitting next to that old geeky guy? And that's like his direct quote, old geeky looking guy. And so he's really the only one that got a look. And the only reason he got a look at him is because he was curious. Why, why is she paying attention to him and not me? Hmm. It's sort of the jealous young man point of view. That's interesting. Um, I've got a few more questions about, about the case um, that just sort of trickling into my mind as, as I'm thinking about it. Um, so I hope you'll entertain them just for the, the time being. Oh, hell yeah. I love talking about this. <laughs> yeah, no, I can tell. It's just, I, I think, the reason I was a bit trepidatious about this is I, I didn't want to kind of ask you stuff that you've been asked like a million times before, which I imagine is very difficult not to, to do. But um, at the same time, I, th- I think for me, from an outsider's perspective, looking in, it's, it's just a classic thing of like, it, you find yourself with a million different questions because the human brain is brilliant, isn't it? In, in the way that it, you know, and what you were saying before about how that FBI agent sort of found themselves going into forums and asking people questions and stuff like i think i think that's brilliant i think that demonstrates that you know they're probably stuck for leads didn't know what to do and so it's like why not just look at what people are saying and go hmm maybe that's something we've not considered before hmm maybe you know overlooked or you know it's just because the human mind is brilliant isn't it it can just come up with things and because we're all so different and we all think in different ways. Perfect. You get lots of different perspectives, things you never would have thought of. And it's, it's brilliant. Um, one question I want to ask is, is okay. So presumably there are theories about, you know, yeah, he survived the jump. So then what next? Like, is there any ideas as to like what his, route might have been thereafter you know the plan because i mean look you got two hundred thousand pounds in cash you got to conceal you know the fact that you're parachuting from a plane commercial flight you know it's how do, how, how do you get away and, and also here's another thing as well and this kind of reminds me of um i don't know why but i kept thinking of the shawshank redemption the movie for some reason um when the main character sort of comes out and starts going along 
the country and and taking out amounts from every bank and closing the accounts. But the reason that works, at least in the storyline perspective, is that he's cleverly put little amounts in all these banks. And then, you know, he's just going one by one, closing the accounts and then moving forward. And obviously there are things like paper trails and stuff like that, but he was very careful to cover his tracks. But if you're a guy, you got 200,000 pounds in cash. It's like, that's going to be very difficult to conceal you, you need to have like a clearly thought out plan of like how you're gonna manage that and stuff like that so i just wondered what's the kind of prevailing thought process as to his next actions maybe okay i have a really long answer for you on that oh one. go for it yeah go for it so he asks for two hundred thousand dollars they have to come up with two hundred thousand dollars in cash now weirdly see first bank in seattle they had $250,000 cash set aside in their vault for such an emergency, some sort of hostage situation. They need a ransom. Here we have this block of money in the bank. And they had all the serial numbers and bills documented. Uh, serial numbers are all written down and the bills run microfilm, whatever the hell that high-tech film is in 71. And so they know all the serial numbers of these bills. So they give him the money. He escapes with the money. No money is found until February of 1980 when some parents and their eight-year-old son are on this sandy beach area of the Columbia River. The boy brushes some sand aside and finds this pile of garbage. He picks it up and, oh, it's not garbage. This is money deteriorated money and so that's the first and really only evidence found of the db cooper skyjacking this fifty eight hundred dollars that was found on the the beach of tina bar the problem with the money being found there is it's wildly outside of the accepted drop zone it's right. it's like 20 miles west of the accepted flight path and the wind would have been blowing east so anything that jumps or falls out of the plane should have traveled east from the flight path. So it just doesn't make any sense. And there's never been any explanation for how the money got there. And then Tom Kay, who is a paleontologist who sort of fell into investigating some of this Tina Barr money, he had a paper published about a year ago, two years ago, where it was actually the first use of diatoms in a forensic investigation. Now, what are diatoms? I'm not quite sure because I'm a dummy, not a scientist, but basically diatoms are these single-celled organisms that grow like a glass shell on the outside. They live a very brief life and die in a period of a few weeks or months. And it's what is inside diatomaceous earth. It's these little diatoms. And he was able to find some of those on the bills. And the interesting thing about the diatoms on the bills is they were only of a spring variety. So Cooper jumps out of the plane in November. The money is found on the beach in February of 1980, nine years later. But weirdly, the money only got wet in the river in the springtime. So it, 
any other theories we had for how the money got there, maybe he landed in the Columbia and the money scattered and it got dredged or it floated there. That's sort of all out the window now because the money was only wet for a brief time in the spring. So we thought we had no idea where the money came from and with some more evidence and work, now we really don't know where the money came from. So no one, legitimately no one has a good explanation for how the money got there, why the money got there. The other thing I will say about the money in my super long answer is I believed that the money could have been spent. So you, the FBI gave a list of 10,000 non-sequential serial numbers to banks, to casinos. Uh, hey, if you see any of these 20s come through, it's one of Cooper's, let us know. And nothing ever came up of that. But I assumed a few things incorrect. So I had this guy on my show named Arthur Friedberg. And if you look him up, he is the guy when it comes to U.S. currency. He literally wrote the book on U.S. paper currency. It's called U.S. Paper Currency by Arthur Friedberg. If you're a collector of currency, the last name is very familiar because his family created the system for identifying bills called the Friedberg system. Hmm. He is the guy when it comes to money. And I had him on the show and I said, Arthur, do you think he could have spent any of that money? And he immediately said, no. The idea that you are going to have, you know, over $9,020 bills right. enter circulation. And the idea that not a single one of those bills comes up on a flagged transaction uh, over 50 years. He said that the math doesn't check out in his head. He said that money was never spent. And I, I really wanted to disagree with him. But, you know, here I am sitting across from a guy who obviously knows more about money in the United States and how it moves around than me. And I told him, well, what if he, you, you know, took the money to, to Haiti or to Canada or to Costa Rica where you could probably spend U.S. currency? Yeah, well, what, what about like um, spending money on the black market or something like that? You know, so not officially. Because I, I imagine with that amount of money, and in those quantities, you'd have to spend it in nefarious ways in order to not arouse suspicion, most likely. That's true. But if I, if I am able to launder my money uh, through, through your fake smoothie business or whatever, mm. and that money gets into other people's hands, and then Johnny ends up going to buy a new Fiesta ST in cash, and, but one of those bills was a Cooper bill. So then it gets flagged. So it's not just you spending the money and it gets flagged. It's 37 people down the line spending that money. That becomes a part of a flagged transaction. They look at those serial numbers. None of them are associated with any crimes. So I, I really don't believe at this point in time that, that the money was spent. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see... I can see the thought process behind that. I mean, I, I think it just in any kind of major case where you've got, uh, oh, there's a lovely doggy in the picture there. <laughs> <laughs> I love dogs. Um, yeah, any, any case where there's just like an exceptional amount of money, it becomes problematic. I mean, I think of um, the series Breaking Bad. Um, are you familiar with the series? You must, you must. Oh, hell yeah. 
Right. For those who don't know, basically a guy um, unfortunately gets uh, cancer and instead of accepting money from his friends and family in order to sort of handle treatment and go through all the process, he decides to start cooking meth with one of his previous high school students and all hell ensues. Uh, but obviously he is successful to a degree and ends up getting a lot of money and ends up having this problem of like what the hell do i do with all this money and he obviously launders money through businesses which works to an extent but it's he's still i mean there's that famous scene where it's him and his wife and he's sitting literally got like a massive crate sized amount no like a not bigger than that like a pallet sized amount of money and there's got to be at least two hundred and fifty thousand dollars there five hundred thousand maybe even a million um and and the first thing I thought about that was like, you did, there's just getting this kind of amount of money at one time is a problem. You know, it's a big <laughs> problem. You know, like if you, if you win the lottery tomorrow, it's like, you can't just like put it in the bank. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you got to like put it in the specialist bank. You got to, there's different ways you got to do these things. You know, it's got to get taxed. I mean, that, that, that's a whole other thing right there, you know yeah you can try and put it into a system but then there's just all these rules that apply to it like it's and the more you have the more hassle it is it's uh, it, it makes you wonder doesn't it like maybe this person you know yeah they might have had like fantastic flight experience and, and expertise and stuff like that but maybe they would just want very good with money it's <laughs> quite possible like they just didn't think that part through yeah but, one of the the suspects uh wolfgang gossett he sort of gets entangled in uh, some drama with a few ladies he owes money and some gambling problems. Right. So it was believed that this, that was the solution to his money issues. Mm. Of course, that's a good point as well. Is like, could that money have been used in gambling contexts? Because that's probably one of the only acceptable ways you could, you know get away with gambling a large amount of money without being asked questions potentially you know yeah but you... how many bookies are are taking bets that big uh, you know adjusted for inflation it's 1.25 million today okay Even placing right. that bet with a vegas bookie today i can't call into vegas and say hey man uh give me 1.25 million uh, on the nuggets tonight well no but you, what i mean is you'd have to kind of do it in increments wouldn't you so you bet like fifty thousand here ten thousand there i don't know so maybe i'm just potentially I don't, I don't know i mean it's yeah but yeah no i mean to, to get to like that level of betting in those amounts you have to be accepted as part of like their little club don't you like millionaires club so to speak <laughs> oh but, yeah, yeah i remember reading once it was uh I think it was, oh, it was Jay-Z. Jay-Z has a fantasy football league where it's a million-dollar entry fee, winner takes all. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty cool. Oh, man. Um, what, what do you think are the sort of the key lessons or takeaways that we should take from the D.B. Cooper case? That's a good question. Uh, I think for me, one of the lessons I've taken from this is I've interviewed several people who their their uncle was D.B. Cooper, their grandpa was D.B. Cooper, their friend was D.B. Cooper, their ex-husband was D.B. Cooper. 
And what I've learned from that is that all of those people are telling the truth. They really are because in almost every circumstance, it was their loved one who told them they were Cooper. And so a lot of times it's a deathbed confession. Weirdly in this case, uh, somewhere between dozens and up to 900 people have confessed to this crime in a realistic way. Um, I think tens of thousands have confessed um, sort of as a joke. I mean, you could go on Twitter tomorrow and type IMDB Cooper and you will get 10,000 different people who have tweeted that. Are those serious confessions? No. But there have been many confessions that were serious. Wolfgang Gossett, for example, he told both of his sons on their 18th birthday, and he also told two different lawyers in two different states the full story. Um, you had Dwayne Weber confess on his deathbed, I am Dan Cooper. And then his ex, Joe, goes to the local library and picks up the one D.B. Cooper book they had because she didn't know who Dan Cooper or D.B. Cooper was. And it had her dead husband's handwriting in the margins of the book. Interesting. Um, Kenny Christensen, sort of a loose confession. His brother interpreted it as I'm D.B. Cooper and, and ran with that narrative. Uh, Barb Dayton, she confessed to the foremans that she was D.B. Cooper. And if I've learned anything, it's that when a loved one tells you something like that and you mm -hmm. love them, you know, this is, this is my dad, this is my uncle, this is my best friend. They're, they're not going to lie to me about this. So then you, it, it puts these people on a journey to prove their loved one right. Not even necessarily solve the Cooper case. It always goes down this angle of proving your loved one right which is why I've decided on my deathbed that I'm going to confess <laughs> to some insane shit to my family. So I'll know what they're doing after I'm dead. It's just what a mess with your family. I love it. <laughs> um, why do you think all these people lied? I mean, yeah, I get the idea of it, it would be cool to, to mess maybe with people or to, to create a lure, mysterious, um, atmosphere around your death or around you in general but why do you think so many people have confessed to being db cooper like what, what is the point of lying about something like this that's a question i ask on my show to almost every guest oh cool and i think the biggest reason for it is that he was cool and oh. you know maybe i lived this boring life or i lived sort of a a life where I have a lot of regrets and I was loosely associated with this. You know, maybe one time somebody joked, oh yeah, maybe, maybe uh, Walt did it. I could imagine Walt doing this. And so that's sort of in the back of your mind. And, you know, I'm not sure. I, I see why people do it, mm. but I, I could, I definitely couldn't see myself doing it. <laughs> I get it. I, mean, I wasn't really expecting an answer. I guess I was just kind of intrigued because 
Yeah. Well, I mean, people will lie about all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, of course. Um, oh, yeah. There aren't a lot of people lining up to say I was the Zodiac killer. Yeah, yeah, no, some there, <laughs> there's no cachet in that. No one's going to buy you a drink at the bar because you were the Zodiac killer. There are many bars in Oregon, Washington, where if you walked in and said, I'm D.B. Cooper, uh, drinks are free. So that's part of the difference. He's not, no one's really looking down on him anymore that same way. Occasionally, I'll have a guest that's like, you know, it's really important to know that he was a hijacker and he was threatening all these people's lives with that bomb. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I do see your point, but I don't even really believe the bomb was real. I think that too. No one was yeah. hurt. So, yeah, and if you want to cultivate fear amongst people, but also not be stressed yourself, you would lie about something like that in that kind of situation. And given that this situation seems to imply that this person had a good deal of understanding of human psychology, at least even just on a basic level, they knew enough to know how to kind of manipulate people into fear and to believing him. He must've been a good, a good liar, you know, to be able to, to, to cultivate that. Like, I, I just, I just think in that kind of a situation where it is possible there could have been a bomb, but I just feel like that's too much going on to think about, you know, like you got a bomb on top of everything else. I just, and also, I mean, okay, it's different time, but it would have been, very difficult to smuggle a bomb on, on a plane, even then. Um, not impossible. You know, I mean, it's a different time. I don't, you know? I don't think it was difficult then at all. I mean, there were, right. nobody looked at his luggage or anything. Richard McCoy uh, did a copycat skyjacking approximately six months later. He brought his own parachute on the plane. So <laughs> there's, there's that. Wow. I mean, now you get aboard a plane and you see someone with a suspicious briefcase and a parachute. Hmm. I don't know about this guy. You're close to 300,000 downloads for your show on Podbean. I checked it the other day. It was about 296,000. So roundups, nearly 300,000. How did, I mean, how long has the show been going? How did you achieve this incredible feat? And what does it mean to you? I've been doing the show. Hold on. Let me let my dog out of the room real quick. <laughs> so for those listening, got this lovely what 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 breed is the dog actually? I'm just wondering. All right. Sorry about that. How unprofessional what, of me. What what breed is the dog? Uh she's a German Shepherd. German Shepherd. Lovely. Yeah. I recommend those who listen to the show to uh go check out the video version of the podcast on Spotify and YouTube and you can see glimpses of the dog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been doing the show a little over four years now, uh, almost five years. That's amazing. And my original goal for the show was I thought I would do around about 20 episodes because I thought who could do more than that on DB Cooper? Not even me. Mm. And my goal, like numbers wise, I thought I would love it if I could get a thousand downloads total out of those 20 episodes. Right. It would be a success in my book. And pretty quickly, it became a little bit more successful than I thought. So at first, I thought the only audience that I have are the 37 people arguing about it online every day. <laughs> I know that they'll listen to it, yeah, but I don't know anyone else that will. And I don't really have any sort of means or avenue to promote 
anything other than like my own Facebook page. Um, and so doing the interviews, I really loved doing it. And I have always sort of fantasized about being a guest on somebody else's show. Mm. I know that sounds like really goofy or narcissistic, but no, as, a, as just a huge radio fan, I always, oh, what if I was sitting on the other side of this interview? Like, that'd be so cool. So I thought, okay, I'm going to reach out to a bunch of different podcasts and see if they'll have me on because I mm. like doing this. And so I reached out to a bunch of shows and basically no one got back to me except for this one show that I had actually listened to a bunch of their episodes, Mysterious Circumstances with uh, Justin Rimmel. And he was like, yeah, I'll have you on, but if it's no good, I'm not going to air the episode. And I thought, okay, that's totally fair. I accept that 100%. And Brutal. I recorded an episode with him and it, it, he released it. I feel like I did a pretty good job. And that was the first time where I had people find my show uh, okay. that weren't yeah, like yeah, yeah, specifically yeah. looking for something on D.B. Cooper. And it, it gave my show a pretty good bump. And so I thought, okay, this is this is the way to do it. If I'm going to promote this, I got to promote it to people who are already listening to podcasts. So I just started, Hey, any show that'll have me on, I'd love to be a guest. And I love doing it. I, I've been trying to do the same lately, admittedly not as, as much, but I, I try, I've tried going on other, other people's shows and I suppose trying to give people a taste of what it's like to, to listen to my show, listen to me talk. I mean, ultimately I let my guests talk. That's my sort of thing. But um, yeah, no, growing a podcast is hard. It's a little bit easier for something like what you're doing because it's, well, I say easier, but it's a niche. It's a specific thing. It's a thing that it's a lot of people can have interest in this. So they're just going to check out even just for curiosity purposes. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, this person's talking about the DB Cooper case. I really am into that. But uh, if you're trying to do something like what I'm doing, right, it's just straight up discussions with people it's it's hard it's a hard thing yeah i um, i saw my show get a couple of a couple of bumps from unrelated things like oh cool uh loki was in not uh that marvel show loki yeah did a brief like 20 oh, second db cooper joke of course yes yes and i, remember that. I yeah, saw yeah, 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 yeah. numbers for my show go up when i didn't release an episode so it's like okay that's that was the Loki thing or the John Dower documentary that came out. It was on BBC and uh, that gave me a little bump. That's weird, isn't it? That whole, when you're not releasing an episode thing. Cause I've noticed that like I've been releasing loads of episodes lately. Cause I've just had luckily a massive demand in podcast guests. So I've just been running with it. Like anytime someone's reached out to me, I'm like, yep, yeah, come on the show. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do a show. Uh, so I'm doing them back to back to back and it's a lot of work. But I love it. I do love it. Um, but the numbers, the numbers are very low. Um, they, and if anything, they keep getting lower. Like the last uh, couple of shows I've released, it's like, you know, five views, three views, zero, whatever, you know. And um, but then like earlier episodes are picking up a lot more views. And I'm just kind of looking at that like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, what? But it's yeah. And sometimes like, like I know after this little slump, oh, not slump, sorry. Um, that's a weird way of putting it. I suppose it is a slump. But no, after this period where when, when I basically stop 
having people on the show and I go back to just having like, you know, doing one a week or, or whatever the case may be. Um, I know that there'll be a period where, you know, cause sometimes like I've had instances where I haven't released anything for like two weeks and you, you notice episodes bump up and it's so sometimes I wonder like, sh- should I just do it less often, you know? And it's, it's weird, like knowing what to do, what not to do, like, <laughs> very very hard because you you want to do as much as you can um but different things work and it's oh it's, it's it is tough trying to build an audience i've tried so hard um with mine and I've, I've been doing it it'll be two years in july this year and uh it's I mean, it's hard you just gotta work at it i mean you've been doing your show for four years and you've done so much research even prior to actually doing the show itself um that's a commitment right there and it should be applauded and you know honestly congratulations for all the downloads you've achieved like this it's amazing stuff and it's it's good it's it's cool to see another another person doing something that like they're because you know, i have a lot of people on the show that have different passions different things they're doing in life but it's cool meeting people when there's that consistency you know of a thing they're doing over a long 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 period of time you know, that's even more, to me, even more motivational and um, gives me sort of more hope in what I'm doing. So, yeah, I applaud you for that. Really, really awesome I, stuff. I think the best thing to do for growing an audience in a podcast is to keep doing it. Yep. The people who are still podcasting are the ones who are still podcasting. The people who aren't are the ones who quit. I've been on 30 shows that did less than 20 episodes i know what is that about like there's there's a show um i won't mention who but um if they do ever listen to this guys you really gotta set that podcast back up so they got to like over a thousand followers on youtube right which i've never even been able to do that um you know all their episodes were getting thousands of views i mean they were killing it and they were gracious enough to have me on their show very early on and um it wasn't an interview podcast it was just these these two dudes like talking about stuff and it was it was really cool you know they were doing they were doing a good job and um they were covering interesting topics and they were killing it views wise and then they just stopped it and i think i mean i don't know i think it was more just they their own lives caught up with them and they just you know maybe maybe they will revisit it one day in the future who knows and i I hope they do um but it kind of stunned me because i was like but you know you can monetize this and you know loads of people are listening and like you're, you're smashing it but then you stop it and then here's my show where you know i struggle to get even just a few people to listen to it and i publish it everywhere i promote it everywhere i bust my ass like i do all these clips it it takes a lot of time doing a podcast for anyone that doesn't know like you think it's like oh you just record a show and that's it <laughs> new like I mean, just, let's just put this into perspective for a second. We'll compare what I do and then what Darren does. So with what I do, I have people reach out to me or I reach out to them. You have them on the show. You record the episode. Then it comes to editing the episode, clipping it up, doing descriptions uh, for, you know, the clips and stuff you're going to do. Then the, the, the images, which I keep very rudimentary because I'm not a graphic designer or whatever. Um, this whole process. And then, of course, there's the publishing and then promoting on social media. 
And all of that in total takes many, probably two to three hours. I, I've got it to give or take, sometimes less, usually more. Um, all of that for probably something that's not even going to get past five listens or views. And you take all of that for a second and you look at what Darren does, which is he's doing loads of research on top of that. Like I do a bit of research every guest that I, did, that I have on the show and most of the time I ad lib during the, the, pro, the show. So these questions are more just kind of like starting points to get a conversation going potentially if I get stuck, but mostly I just kind of listen to the person and, and just kind of poke them every now and again. And great, you've got something, right? Um, but with what you're doing, it's like a step further because it's like not only is the research um, an integral part of what you're doing, but it, it's something you have to keep revisiting and you have to keep doing and then you have to do research for the guests you're having on your show on top of that and then it's just like there's so much more work involved and um i can't even remember my my original point yeah there's just a lot of work involved in it. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of work involved and most of my guests i'd probably 70 percent of my guests have a book to promote uh, and <laughs> every single one of those i read the entire book before the interview wow even the ones that are horrible and i've read some horrible terrible books that i would never recommend but i i read the book in its entirety for their interview um amazing just because okay. i feel like that's that's the only way i could do it for myself mm. and Many times I've said, I'm not reading. I'm not reading another terrible book. But then I, I end up doing it because, you know, if a book about D.B. Cooper comes out, I'm going to read it. I have, I've read probably 40-something books on the case at this point in time. I have an incredible collection of D.B. Cooper books I'm very proud of. Okay, here's my biggest mistake, Christian. If, if there was a way where I could have made money off the show, and it's I want everyone to know that, I pay for the show. I don't make a dime off the Cooper Vortex. I don't really? make a dime off of it. Really. I pay, I pay uh, $14.99 a month to host my show. I was going to say, and, yeah, Podbean charges you, doesn't it? But like, yeah. you've got 300,000 downloads and you've not seen anything from that. That's mad. How's, what? They were sponsors or something? No, I've, I've even, there are a couple of DB Cooper companies. Like, there's a company called DB Cooper Appliances. Uh, in Chehalis, Washington, there's a bar called D.B. Cooper's in Lincoln, Nebraska. There is a D.B. Cooper-themed brewery in Vancouver. I have reached out to every single one of those companies and said, I will put a free ad in my show for you. Send me a file or send me a script and I'll read it and put it in the show. None of those people have gotten back to me. Um, multiple attempts. And I spoke to the owner of the bar and uh, the the brewery, I spoke to the owner of the D.B. Cooper Appliances, and they're both like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and then they just never follow through. I, I feel your pain, honestly. Um, it's, it's the same thing for, 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 for my show. Um, I use Anchor as my um, distribution service, which uh, I think it's recently been acquired by Spotify. It's great. I, I recommend it. It's, it's a really good tool um it enables my podcast to be distributed on a bunch of platforms and then i've also uploaded on youtube um and 
I see. I don't live in the states. I live in the UK. And but for Anchor, you can only monetize your platform in America. And it always has this little asterisk where it says, um, like, it will be available in in Europe. Like, I've I've tweeted them several times. Like, oh, when's it going to be made available in Europe? When can I monetize in Europe? And they're like, oh yeah, we're working on that both times. And then they say, have you tried pitching it? Right. And of course, look, you know, I don't have a big listenership. If I had like even just a hundred people listening regularly, I would of course pitch it. You know, I'm a businessman. Like I, I know how to pitch things and, and how to, you know, I do marketing for a living and such. So I, I know how to do this stuff, but I've got nothing to pitch. It's like, who, who wants to support a show that, you know, one week gets like five views, another week gets a hundred views, one week gets zero views. Like that's too unpredictable. That's, that's not a listener base. That's, you know, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't listeners cause I know there are. And thank you so much for the people that do listen. But the fact of the matter is it's not consistent. If it were like, even if it were like 20 people every week consistently, that's something you can, you can suggest to people. Right. Um, so that's one aspect to it. And I remember one, one company one time reached out to me and were like, yeah, we, you know, we saw your podcast on YouTube. We want to sponsor you, blah, blah, blah. I was like, great, brilliant. Um, and then they're like, oh, can you please show us your views or listens for the audio version of it? And I was like, uh, okay. Um, cause I was a bit confused. I was like, well, they've asked about the YouTube version, but now they want to know about the audio stuff. And I was like, whatever, it won't take me long, but I did actually spend time like doing mock-ups of images and graphs and all the statistics for that particular point in time. Um, sent all this stuff to them. They never had the decency to get back to me, even just to say no, even just, like, if you're going to reach out to someone and be like, Hey, we would like to support you. And then on a business sense and then you just don't bother get back to them like i'm not being funny but your business is trash if you do that you're like you're i mean i'll never work like if, if if this podcast is successful one day and takes off in the future and that company reaches out to me again <laughs> best believe i'm gonna be ignoring you because it's just like that's not except that's that's so unprofessional you know and like those instances you gave of those um of, of those companies that you know said oh yes they're going to get back to you and then they don't it's like come on man like i mean you were you were offering to do it for free yeah because i wanted the idea that there was a db cooper themed business to be advertising on the show yeah. i didn't care about you know the 50 dollars that they would have given me or whatever the number was mm. i had a try to be vague about this okay i had a podcast network mm -hmm. reach out to me and was like hey we want you to be an exclusive on this network. Yep. And instead of like offering me money or you, this is what you'll get in the future, their pitch was you'll get more listeners if you become exclusive to this. And I'm like, that just doesn't make sense to me at all. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And I was like, okay, no. I had uh, this movie company, uh, production company, I should say, Okay. I talked with them for a while and it was sort of serious. They wanted, but they, it ended up was like, they wanted me to turn my show into a, a series and then they would take that and then go sell it. And oh. I was just like, I'm already doing that on my own. 
Yeah. Why would I need you? And and I mean, I see you're doing video, but I I don't do video because I only care about the medium of radio, the spoken word. I'm like this old timey romantic for it. Uh, I love it. I absolutely love radio. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe it's I have a face for radio, so that's why I'm like <laughs> that instead of being on YouTube or something. You look fantastic, sir. Don't worry. <laughs> I don't, no, no I, I get what you mean. There is some magic to it, and sometimes when I have listened back to my podcast, just just to hear how it sounds, audio version, like it, it, it almost creates like a different vibe. Like not being able to see the people, in a way, creates a different vibe. Larry King famously said, if you are watching a show and they pan to the castle up on the hill, Mm. you're looking at it. That's a castle somebody designed to look a specific way. You're seeing their vision of a castle. If you're listening to the radio and they say, and then the hero walks up the long drive to the castle on the hill, you imagine a castle on the hill. It's your castle. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's perfect. Yeah, I, I think that um, the same can be said for books as well. Just in reading a book versus watching a film, you know, it's it's up to your imagination. And us humans have incredible imaginations. You know, I mean, we've we've demonstrated that with this conversation today, as far as like the various different uh, creative ways that people come up with how things can can transpire how 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 this mysterious figure could have gotten away with this crime and everything in between so it's yeah the power of the imagination is an incredible thing do you Um, like listening to your own show no i hate the sound of my own voice um i like listening to my own show okay because it really is the show i created so like when i listen to the finished episode before it goes out I usually love it. I'm like, this is a great episode. This is amazing. Mm. But when I hear myself laugh, it makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah, th- this is what I mean. Like, I, I too, I like the satisfaction of listening back. To, well, like when I'm editing, I listen back. And if it's been a really, really good show, I'm obviously like really proud of it. And I'm like, yeah, this is good. I'm proud of this. Fantastic. It reaffirms my... Uh, belief in why i'm doing this you know of course but yeah those little things that are insecurities about ourselves come out and i'm just like oh look at my stupid face and that stupid <laughs> laugh and the just oh look, you know but that's just being human and it's, <laughs> it's just like you could, you could find a thousand things that no one will ever find uh and that they'll probably find you very pleasant um or maybe they hate you uh, who cares but like it's just subjective isn't it it's just um i think it always comes down to passion at the end of the day that's the most important thing and you, you definitely have passion in what you do and it's it's amazing to see uh, i've got a final couple of questions for you before we wrap things up uh, completely different not related to db cooper this is just all about you what's the best advice you've ever received the best advice i ever received i feel like i should have an answer to that at the ready <laughs> yeah you should have a cue card next to you like <laughs> what, what do they call them um not cue card oh gosh I, uh, I i just think of those old business presentations that you do you know when they're like oh have yourself some notes oh, powerpoint can... yeah yeah not but but like flashcards. oh That's okay. it. yeah sorry <laughs> but yeah 
I really, I really don't know what the best advice I received. I guess that means I've never received amazing <laughs> advice before. <laughs> so like substandard advice. Hey, no worries, no worries. Um, well, for getting advice for a second, I, I guarantee you have a question to or answer to this question. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? Wow, that's a deep question. It's my favorite question. I would say the biggest life lesson I've learned is do the work. Mm. Do the work, especially something that doesn't take very long. I'm a big <laughs> fan of the book <laughs> Getting Things Done by David Allen. Yeah. David Allen, yeah. Um, that book sort of changed the way I work, changed the way I respond to emails and uh, inquiries things like that. Um, do the work would be my advice. You could do whatever you want, but it usually has a lot of work associated with it. If you want to have a great, amazing podcast or something, or a YouTube channel, do the work and, and get it done. Done is always better than perfect. If you're chasing perfection in your project, um, you're going about it the wrong way. Set a deadline, get it done by the deadline, and then don't wonder, you know, if I would have changed this or that, or if I would have added this, it would have been a little bit better. Move on to your next project and get to work. Solid, solid stuff. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, as we draw things to a close for today, do you have any upcoming projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Hell yeah. I started another podcast. Oh, cool. um, the book of Darren. So I love doing interviews. I've interviewed uh, 50 something people about DB Cooper. Cool. And I enjoy doing that. I'd like to say I'm going to quit the Cooper vortex and move on, but I really can't do that. Um, <laughs> I was going to say it's too much a part of me. I really do. Like I check the forums before my head hits the pillow at night. Really? Um, if I'm waiting in line, somewhere i pull my phone out it's not facebook or twitter i'm going to i'm going to the db cooper forum in the drop zone cool because uh, i'm an insane human being but the new show the book of darren it's the most interesting people and guests according to me just people i wanted to talk to and interview if i would have reached out to i uh, had been my nod on the show if i would reach out to him hey can i talk to you on the phone for two hours uh, he wouldn't even respond to that. But if I say, hey, will you be on my podcast? Uh, then it's like, yeah, now I'll talk to you for two hours. Mm. So I'm I'm going to keep doing that. Oh, well, no, best best of luck with that. I mean, I can tell. Well, I think the most important thing, and, and I've said this both on the actual show before and also just to people in real life, you know, if you're going to do a podcast, be a good, be willing to have conversation. I think that's key. And that's something you're definitely willing to do, not just because you're passionate about this thing, this, this case of DB Cooper, but also just in general, you know, it's every, every time I've ever appeared on someone else's show, I've always made sure to be very chatty. And sometimes, you know, like there was one show I read on recently where I felt like I almost hijacked their show because I spoke too much. So I'm trying to get that balance right. But, you know, yeah, be there, show up, you know, talk a lot um, and be engaged in what you do. And, and people are going to resonate with that. And, 
Yeah, it's great. It's news to my ears to hear that you're doing something else. Is it going to be just not related to DB Cooper at all? Is it just going to be like your own thing, just general conversations, or is it still in the Cooperverse? Um, I my guests will usually bring up DB Cooper at some okay. point in time, and and I'll talk about it. My my first guest was Chris Williamson, who did that Amelia Earhart series. Cool. And like our paths are exactly parallel. It's just the topic is a little bit different and uh i was really really glad to meet him in the last two years uh ben my he's a youtuber who does uh, eclectic and absurd uh, media from the 80s and 90s and and, and cool. on uh had him on to talk about max headroom but it's just people i wanted to talk to uh interesting interesting topics interesting guests and about like being on other podcasts, you know, you ha- it's a performance. You have to be on. Bingo. If you and I are sitting at a bar, my cadence will probably be a little bit different as would yours be. I'm not looking to start talking the second you stop talking. The key thing I've noticed, because actually this podcast has made me a better conversationist in real life, but there is a key difference. You're right. You are putting on a bit of a performance. But do you know what? Some of the best conversations I have in life are similar to these chats on a show. The only difference being that you're not talking to an audience. Whenever I ask questions on this show or I'm listening or whatever I do on this show, I'm very cognizant of the fact that there is an audience listening. Whereas when you're sitting down with your buddy at a bar or whatever, you know, you're not... They don't have to answer straight away. You can have periods where no one says anything. Like there's... There's different, there's always different rules. That's, I think that's the key, isn't it? Is different rules. Cause I like to try and be as authentic as possible within the confines of what we're doing. But yeah, there is a performance element to it. Like I wouldn't be able to just sit here and just be like, so what do you think about this? And look, there are shows like that that exist. And I, I just don't think that's good enough personally. Um, you know, maybe that's controversial to say, but I, I think all any podcast requires you to have some degree of energy. You know, um, there are different ways that podcasts can be carried out and you know, much of the same way as radio, but you have to have energy. You have to show up. Like you can't just be like half fast about it because that just makes for a terrible listening experience or a terrible viewing experience because you can, especially, especially if you've got one person that's really trying and the other person's just like, like, oh yeah that's the worst why do you have this co-host that just sits there oh, have to ask oh yeah, yeah gary what do you have to say gary see see i i i was just thinking of just like someone who has like a bad guest or something or, or a bad host or something but that's a very good point when you've got like a co-host that's just like oh like i think of this podcast i won't name it but there's a pretty it's, it's now ended because the podcast didn't it was terrible <laughs> but but what what would happened was it was a beloved um youtuber who his channel has just gone to new levels of depravity over the years it's just not as good as it once was you know and one of the biggest reasons that people point to that for happening is the fact that it was acquired by this company this production company and ever since then they well they're supposed to be helping this person and making it easier for him to create content but actually they've made it several times worse since their influence has been felt and at some point someone threw the idea of doing a podcast now 
people come to this particular YouTube channel for this specific guy, not for these other guys. Like these other guys have popped up in this guy's videos here and there, but like he's the tra he's the main event, he's the attraction and the stuff he creates and his passion. That's what people come there for. So when you see this podcast, right, and you see these two guys sitting there and they're leading it, and you know one of them sort of like half engaged, the leader is is kind of like asking questions but not really listening, which is that is one of the most frustrating things I have. I'm just going to go on a little bit of a rant here, so just bear with me. But yeah, listen to your guests. Listen. Don't cut them off. You know, and don't get me wrong, I've, I've been guilty of that in the past and I've worked on that. But the, whenever I've cut people off, it's to ask them a follow-up question or to like, because I'm engaged in the conversation. It's never, oh, I just want to talk about this thing. It's, no, I want to, I'm so engaged in this, I want to know this. And I get giddy, but I remember that it's a conversation. So you've got to be polite and let it unfold and, and and kind of pick your moment to kind of guide it but this particular instance that i'm talking about the guy that was your main attraction was barely barely involved he's kind of like yeah uh-huh yeah maybe and sometimes you get some good stuff out of him and 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 whatnot but the the two guys running it like <sighs> I mean, what can you say, really? They just, they shouldn't have done a podcast. I don't think a podcast is for everyone. Um, I know it's a very popular form of content to create and to do, but, you know, it takes a hell of a lot of planning and a lot of research. And I'm just speaking to the listeners. I know you know all this, but it's, it's you got to think about these things, you know, and you got to try all different things. It took me a while to work out what my format was and what my structure was and, because you know, at first I thought I was just going to kind of share stories with other people and just kind of banter a bit or, I don't know, interview them a little bit. But uh, I don't know. I was still figuring it out. But then it clicked like, no, I should explore these people's lives, but show interest and be engaged. Try to ask the right questions. Occasionally share stories in an effort to connect. And sometimes it will be a back and like every episode is different. Like that's the, the deal with my show is it's some episodes. It's just all about the other person. And I just guide it. Sometimes I'm the one guiding it because the other person's a bit quieter and I've got to kind of push a bit more and that's fine. And sometimes it is just back and forth and, and you see where it goes. But the point is it's different every time. And it's different because I'm focused on how my guest is and letting them kind of lead it, not take control, but you know, you adjust accordingly, just like you would in real life in a real life conversation, you know? And I think that's key is, is looking at it like that, like adjusting to the people that you have on your show, still trying to achieve your goal ultimately, but adjusting to them rather than trying to force on them your idea of how this conversation should go, you know? Oh, I think that's, that's very well said. You know, I sort of do the same thing. I'll, I'll have written down sort of a roadmap of where I want the interview to go. It's going to start here and then we're going to weave over here and then finish over there. And, you know, they'll say something in the middle like, oh yeah, and then this happened. And I'm whoa, 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 tell me that part again. <laughs> and that's, it's something, you know, I don't want to say I'm, I'm great at it, but it's something I've definitely gotten a lot better at in the last few years is sort of doing a better job listening, realizing where they're going and realizing where I want this to go. And sometimes you have a guest where it just throws you completely off. They change topics mid-sentence and 
Like, okay, enough about the Braves. Let's go back to this D.B. Cooper thing. Oh, it's hard. So, isn't it? That's a hard one. I, I, I've done my best to, to kind of move around that, but it's, it's tricky being able to navigate that because you don't want to be rude. And sometimes what they're saying is gold, but at the same time, yeah, like you might have like, a, like if, if, the, if the whole show is about, say, D.B. Cooper or a particular topic, it's like, ah, oh, should we really be talking about this thing? I suppose I could clip it, but, you know, then, oh, I don't know. And it's, 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 it's hard knowing what the right or wrong thing is to do in these instances. But, you know, I, I think you kind of just have to call it as you see it to some extent, you know what I mean? And just, and just go with the flow. And I suppose the power of editing is it enables you to kind of get around that a little bit. Whereas I... Exclu- oh, yeah, definitely. That's the thing. I exclusively don't edit because A, I'm lazy and B, um, I like the idea of like a kind of conversation where there are ums and ahs and it's, it is something you're listening to that's almost like it's not even like you're listening to the classic sense of a podcast. You're listening to it's like you're a fly on the wall listening in on a conversation, but it's a structured conversation. You see. <laughs> I've done... <laughs> I've done uh, 60 something episodes and there are probably a half dozen times. And I can remember each one specifically where the guest either went too long or too short or said something <laughs> off topic yeah. and it just completely threw me. And then the guest stops talking and then there's silence and I'm like trying to collect myself. Where was oh. I? Where, we're go- where are we going? And it's like, so embarrassing i feel like oh i'm so stupid i don't i can't even think of a question but i had you know i have 17 questions down here but no and any of these are going to be wildly off topic now so that that's where editing definitely saves me where i can look a little bit smarter than i actually am yeah no i know what you mean like i heavily rely on ad-libbing but i always have the questions in front of me as a kind of a guy like i mentioned earlier but one thing i've done just in case is to have a sheet of generic questions i've never really used it but there's some generic questions some of them i do ask like i've asked you some of them which is best advice biggest life lesson but i i just think those are good questions because everyone has a different answer and I don't know. I just, I just like those questions, but there are so some, yeah, yeah, right. And, but there are some like a sheet that I, I wrote, which is, is really useful if you've got someone who you genuinely don't know what to ask them. And this happens sometimes more often. Than, they, see anyone listen to this now. That's a podcast. You're getting a podcast in masterclass. So I hope you're enjoying this and listening. Um, it's good to have some reserved questions, stuff for when you're just stumped, because sometimes you won't have a lot of questions prepared because there's just not a lot to go on. Maybe there's not a lot of information about this person. Maybe there's just not a lot of questions you can ask or interesting questions. Like it's one thing to be like, so what's this job like? Or what's your favorite thing about this? But that doesn't really inspire people. What you need is something that's going to get to the heart of it. You know, like today, my thought process was, is this something that this, obviously this person's really passionate about it, but can you get a whole conversation out of this? Or is it going to be, that's one part of the interview and the rest is focused on them outside. It just so happens we've had a massive conversation about this and it's, and it's been really enjoyable and that's how it's gone. And just the same as you mentioned, that you sort of roll with it and see how it goes. I do the same thing. I, I, I focus in on certain things. I try to fixate on certain things that the, the guest is doing and, and I make that my focus. But um, 
Oh, it's, it's so unpredictable. It really is. But it's a journey, and, and we're always trying to get better. But anyway, I just want to say a massive thank you for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I wish you the best of luck with this new podcast that you're doing. And obviously, I think you should yeah, definitely never, never stop this, this Cooper Vortex show. I think it's a great uh, concept. And I think there's, yeah, you're always going to find new questions as the time goes on. There's always going to be more questions to ask in that regard. Oh, yeah. The D.B. Cooper seems to be solved by somebody else every year or two. So. <laughs> Everyone's got the answer. No, um, massive thank you for being on the show and to all the listeners of the Christian Reef podcast. As always, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.